Is this the first time you've done a reading for us? Isn't that fantastic? All right, when you're ready, take your time. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She had done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give his money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Wow. Excellent, excellent. I'm, uh, I'm out of a job. Excellent, there we go. Um, we're in Mark chapter 14, and we're beginning, um, uh, to, well, we're picking up on the series we were doing on the Gospel of Mark last year. We stopped um, uh, towards the end of the year, and we're picking it up again now in the run-up to Easter, because Easter, believe it or not, is not all that far away. And so we're going to get back on the, on the road to the resurrection. This is part one today. And we're looking at Mark 14 and what happens to Jesus and around him on his way to the cross and then ultimately to, on his way to and out of the tomb to make it an empty tomb. And today our title is A Beautiful Thing. Now tell me, what are some things you consider to be beautiful? That is the correct answer. He got in first. That is the correct answer. Brownie points to Danny. All is going to be well in the Makinson household for the rest of the day. I'm going to that, my cat. <laughs> the cat. Okay. Well, I don't know. Moving on. Wife, cat, any, any advance? Yes. Sunrise. sunrise. Isn't a sunrise? It is beautiful, isn't it, to see a sunrise? What else is beautiful? A new baby. A new baby. That brand new baby. Oh, so nothing, nothing quite like that. Spring flowers coming out. Some of them are beginning to come out now. Daffodils are up. And, yeah, absolutely. Han William is handsome. <laughs> Which is the male equivalent of beautiful? Is that what that worked for? Okay, all right, good, yeah, very good. The children, absolutely. You do have beautiful children. What else is beautiful? The sea hitting the rocks. The sea hitting the rocks. They're down at the seaside. Yeah, yeah. What else? Quiet riverside. Quiet riverside. Uh, sort of just that gentle sound of the river. Mm. What else? Sunset, sunrise and sunset. The complexity and the 
ordering of the universe. Yeah, it, is, it has its own majestic beauty. Kindness. Kindness is always beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, what else? Anything else? And real laughter. Real laughter. That comes from deep inside, right? Spontaneous, Spontaneous belly laughter. Love that. Simon. Helping the poor. Helping the poor. Benevolence. I thought, Simon, you were going to say uh, Dennis Bergkamp when he was in playing at his best for, for Arsenal, <laughs> right? Which is also true, but... Uh, <laughs> Any, what else? Anything else? You're right, you know. Any of us have managed to travel to countries like India where I've been. You know, you see people with almost nothing and they're so generous and it's a beautiful thing and they find such joy in it, don't they? Yeah, lots of beautiful things. So many beautiful things. And that's our title today. And I would say... Beauty is quite hard to define, but you know it when you see it. And what's beautiful to somebody may not be beautiful to somebody else, but no, nonetheless, that person themselves know that they are observing or participating in something they would describe as beautiful. And we're going to look at something that Jesus said was beautiful today. What he thought was beauty, beautiful, and as well as what he sees as beautiful, we're also going to see the opposite. In this passage, we're going to see, if you like, ugliness. Because also, I would say, ugliness is perhaps hard to define, but is easy to spot when you see it. So where are we? Can we go to the next slide, uh, Penny, if you wouldn't mind? We are in, in this passage, in a three-act play, you could say. We've got the scheming religious leaders at the beginning, scheming to kill Jesus. And then we've got the generosity of the woman who anoints him. And then at the end of the passage, bookending it, we've got another scene of ugliness, which is the scheming of Judas to betray him for Jesus for money. Next slide, love. So in chapter 13, you may remember that the storm clouds were gathering over Jerusalem. You may remember this a few weeks ago now, but we talked about chapter 13 where the disciples asked Jesus, uh, what's, when is this going to happen? Because Jesus says all these stones are going to come down, the temple's going to be destroyed, and it's going to be a mess. And they say when, and he describes a few things. And it's, 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 a, it's a prophecy of what's going to happen in the near future, and the vast majority of what's talked about in that chapter. Those storm clouds are coming over Jerusalem, which will culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Roman armies and the destruction of the temple. In this chapter, the storm clouds are beginning to gather over Jesus. So right after he's talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, we find these religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus himself. So let's talk about a few bits and pieces from the chapter, and then I'll summarize with some thoughts that may help us, I hope, and then we'll have a time to reflect before we take bread and wine uh, as we reflect on the cross. So here we have at the beginning the timing of what's going on. It's the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. They're just about to happen. And the Passover was the time when the Israelites remembered their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. How God rescued them powerfully, defeated the armies of Pharaoh, and they were allowed to escape from slavery. And the festival of unleavened bread was to, was to celebrate um, what happened after the Passover, which was that the Israelites took unleavened bread with them on their journey into the desert. Uh, they had to take unleavened bread because they wouldn't have time to make bread with the, with the yeast. And so that commemorated, again, that time of 
of rescue by God, of God being on their side, of God fighting for them, giving them freedom, giving them a new life, being their God demonstrably by defeating the armies of Pharaoh at the Red Sea, keeping them safe as the cloud of uh, a pillar, the pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night guided them through the desert. This is what they were celebrating. It's freedom. It is God with us. We are God's people. That's what the Passover and the Unleavened Bread Festival was, was all about. And that's what's going on here. And we see that they have, despite the fact they are meant to be the religious leaders who are meant to recognize God's work, God at work, nonetheless, they're trying to kill now the one who's going to give them true freedom. The, the one of God, who is God in flesh, who is now with them in a way much more powerful than Moses or an angel or a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. Now the one who was behind all that and the substance of all that is with them, and yeah, but they're trying to kill him. Very messed up. Well, Jesus goes to Bethany. You may remember that that's the place where Lazarus was brought back to life, where Mary and Martha lived. That household was one he frequented. It doesn't say here that it's that house, but it almost certainly is. It's called the house of Simon the leper. And we don't know who Simon the leper was, but it's a, there's a reasonable chance, I am speculating, but there's a reasonable chance that might have been the parents of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. The fact that it's the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and it doesn't mention their parents, we seem to indicate that perhaps their parents aren't around. And you normally name the house after the father. So perhaps Simon the leper is the father, but he's not obviously in the house because he is a leper and he would have to be in isolation. We see other examples of that in, uh, in the Old Testament in particular. So it's quite possible that was the dad and uh, that we're in the house of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. Perhaps the woman is Mary. Perhaps the woman is Martha. The woman is unnamed, which we'll talk about a bit more in a, in a moment. But here we are. Um, in the house, and the woman comes in, the unnamed woman. Unnamed why? We don't know. Perhaps because the writer, Mark, is interesting. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark names people much less than Matthew, Luke, or John. We don't know exactly why, but for some reason, he doesn't name people as much. It could be that he's simply trying to focus on the heart and on the devotion and on the demonstration of discipleship rather than on naming people and making them the, the focus in some way because of that. Um, I would say the fact that we have a woman here is significant because, as you may know, Jesus allowed women to get closer to him and to touch him and to interact with him far more than would be normal in that culture. And it's a demonstration, again, of how he treats people equally and with love, no matter where they come from, who they are, what gender, what background, uh, or anything like that. We have the nard poured out. I think on the next slide, we have a picture of the plant from which the nard is taken. It's an Indian plant. Uh, that's what it comes from. It's extremely expensive. The amount she pours out here, this, this bottle of perfume, uh, would have been maybe a, a year's salary. Uh, and even if your salary isn't particularly large, I dare say you wouldn't write, you know, you, you would think twice before spending your whole year's salary on something that is, at least looks like it's wasted. I mean, once it's poured out, it's poured out. It's not, you can't get it back in the bottle, right? It's not done anything, yet she pours it all out, a year's salary. It might well have been her, her life savings, like the savings for a rainy day, like when something happens that's, that's bad. Um, and yet she pours it out. We'll talk more about that in the reasons in a moment. And she does it, Jesus sees it as an anointing. And of course, Jesus was Messiah, which means the anointed one. And so she's anointing him 
um, demonstrating her better, perhaps her better understanding of who he is much more than even his official disciples at this point. The people around complain. They are indignant and they rebuke her harshly. Some of those present, uh, that seems to indicate that some of those rebuking and who were indignant were disciples, not just bystanders, not just the religious leaders. Uh, even they complained. They had a bit of a history, didn't they, of getting the wrong end of the stick? Not too long before this, in chapter 10, they're rebuking the children for coming to see Jesus. And Jesus says, what on earth are you thinking? Of course I want the kids with me. And of course he wants this woman doing what she's doing. They misunderstand. Uh, the word here to rebuke also can mean glowering. So I don't know if you've ever had that kind of situation where someone's glowering at you. I mean, you know, that sort of furrowed brow and, and frown, and that's, that's what's going on for her. Imagine how she might be feeling. And then Jesus. The reaction of Jesus is so wonderful, isn't it? Leave her alone, he says. Just leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Imagine how she's feeling now. She's done a beautiful thing. And this is interesting. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. Maybe he's indicating that they're not actually helping the poor much themselves, and they could do it a bit more if they wanted to. But considering how much Jesus cared about the poor and the marginalized, isn't it interesting that he says, it's okay, she can be this wasteful. Yes, the poor are around. They will always be around. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 15 here, actually. Uh, but you will not always have me. He's saying something here about the primacy of our devotion to him, not just doing things for him. She did what she could. Poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Whether she realized that's what she was doing or not, but that's what he says, sees her as doing. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He's not saying that she was wise to do this but she's saying she did a beautiful thing. He's not making a comment on her wisdom, but on her love, and he approves of that. And then we have the scene with Judas at the end, scheming. He goes to the chief priests to betray Jesus, and they're delighted, and they promise to give him money, which apparently he loved. Uh, he was the treasurer for the disciples group, and apparently, according to one of the other gospels, he used to stick his hand in the in the bag every now and again. So he had uh, very poor motives regarding money. And he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And we'll see the consequences of that in the, coming, in the coming weeks. So what do we have here? Can we go to the next slide, love? Thanks. In this passage, we have a number of contrasts and parallels. Here are a few I noticed. You may well find some more. We have a contrast between the beautiful and the ugly. We have a contrast between the generosity of the woman and the greed of, the, uh, of Judas himself. We have a contrast between the wholeheartedness of the woman and the half-heartedness of Judas in his discipleship and you could say the religious leaders. We have a contrast between the freedom that Jesus offers and the captivity that the religious leaders want to keep the people of Israel in. They want to hold them into the law rather than allow them to enjoy true freedom. We have a contrast between the new life that Jesus is bringing, a hope for a new relationship with God, and we have a contrast there between that and the old life under the law, which has no hope of redemption from sin in itself. We have the pure motives of the woman contrasted with the twisted motives 
of the religious leaders and uh, Judas. And perhaps we have the realization that the men are messed up, but the woman is pure-hearted. Isn't that true of life? Come on, women, give me an amen. Or maybe not. So what does this mean for us? I've got a couple of applications, and you can make your own, because some of this will apply to you in different ways to me. But the first application I think I see in this, or the first point, is that wholeheartedness is always beautiful. Half-heartedness never is. Giving part of our heart to somebody is never beautiful. Giving your whole heart is beautiful. In a friendship, in a marriage, with our children, it's giving all of you is what is beautiful and what is meaningful. Giving part of ourselves never is. Don't you love it when you see somebody wholeheartedly involved in what they're doing? It doesn't always matter what it is. I love the fact, and we are very blessed by the fact, that Danny is very wholehearted in his song leading. You never see Danny half-hearted. He gives, it, it gives, you, it gives everything. And, and I, I love that, that enthusiasm, that wholeheartedness. It's for God, but we all benefit. And there are many people like that in this congregation. You know, the woman could have poured some of the perfume. She had to break the neck of the jar, but she could have poured a bit out and then found another jar to pour the rest in and keep that, right? And it would have been impressive if she poured part of it because it was expensive. But she poured all of it. It seems to me that generosity is a characteristic of being Christ-like. A Christian, by definition, is somebody who is generous. Is somebody who is wholehearted. As we follow Jesus, who in his actions and his life was wholehearted. The woman here is God-focused and relationship-based in some of the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks. She's God-focused because she trusts God for her future. This is her life savings, but she's trusting God. Like the widow we read about not long ago who put those two small coins in the temporal treasury, all she had to live on. Doesn't look wise, but Jesus commended her. Same thing here, another woman doing something so generous. Not two small coins here, very expensive, but nonetheless, wholeheartedness. She's God-focused, and she's relationship-based. She's not doing it to impress anybody. She's not doing it to earn something, to get her some kind of position with God. She's doing it because she thinks Jesus is amazing. It's an expression of love of a relationship for and with Jesus. The religious leaders, on the other hand, are self-focused. They have their agenda. They want what they want. So does Judas. And the religious leaders are control-based, not relationship-based. They want to control the narrative, control the outcome. The woman here is exercising her freedom in Christ. I mean, she's not yet a Christian because Christians don't yet exist, but until Jesus rises from the dead and the Spirit comes. But if you see what I mean, she is exercising her freedom that Christ has given her by being so generous. She's got that spirituality of decision to make. She makes a, a very spiritual decision, which is, doesn't seem sensible in some ways, and yet is beautiful. The people around Jesus don't want the woman to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. The People in the room, other than her and Jesus, are more interested, are more interested in, in keeping her in her place than allowing her to have her freedom to express her love for Jesus. Wholeheartedness is beautiful. This next slide. I was in Los Angeles, as many of you know, as a photograph taken of a dinner I shared with old friends of mine called Chris and Lynn Smith. I know that in the photograph, I'm not looking quite as delighted as Chris and Lynn. Uh, but believe me, I was having a very good time. I blame the photographer. Um, <clears throat> after the conference, 
um, Chris, in the photograph in the middle there, uh, drove up from where he lives in San Diego to where I was in Los Angeles and picked me up and drove me back down to where they live in San Diego. Uh, Chris and Lynn Smith are members of our church in, uh, in San Diego down there, and Penny and I have known them since 1985. Yes, that long. It is that long, darling. Um, and they came over on an evangelistic campaign from San Diego to take part in a campaign when they were uh, dating, in fact, not yet married. And uh, then they got married and moved over to the UK, and we shared a flat with them, uh, 86, 87, a flat in West Hampstead, a really small little flat, two married couples in there, both young marrieds. And then we shared a house with them in Dollis Hill, 86, 87, 88, and that's where the time when Akin and I were studying the Bible together, and Akin got baptized into Christ. You were talking about that last, uh, last Sunday I saw it on the video. Thank you for preaching last week. Um, and uh, that's, so that's, you know, we shared a, a, a house and a flat for two years together. So we got to know each other very well, as you can imagine. Uh, then all four of us went to Birmingham to help plant the church there. We should planted a church in 1988. And they stayed there, and we moved back down to London after two or three months or so. And then they moved back to the United States about perhaps 1990 or thereabouts. We've maintained our friendship. We see each other so rarely. Uh, but now and again, we get a chance to catch up. I love Chris and Lynn, we both do very, very much, and they love us very much. It was a really great privilege to spend two days, two and a half days with them down in San Diego. Um, they looked after me so nicely. They were very generous with their time. They took time off their normal things to spend Sunday, uh, uh, Saturday evening, Sunday all day, Monday all day, Tuesday morning, most of Tuesday, dropping me off back at the airport. Um, very generous with their time. Very generous with their hospitality. Uh, looked after me so nicely in their home. They were very generous with their money. Uh, the reason I have this photo up is because we were eating at a restaurant overlooking the beach in San Diego, uh, where actually their son works as a waiter. So he took the photo here. Uh, and uh, they, uh, it was not a cheap restaurant, I'll say that. It was more, let's put it this way, and I apologize, Chris, if you watch this, and then, but if you came to visit us, I wouldn't spend this much in a restaurant uh, on you. Um, that's, that's how I felt. And I looked at the menu and the prices, and I felt rather embarrassed. Um, it was quite expensive. It's a really nice restaurant and a uh, really lovely location and uh, really good food. Bill, you asked what I'm eating. It's some fish, um, I guess locally caught. Um, some uh, bass, I think it was sea bass or something like that. Really good food. Um, and it was just amazing. And we were there for hours catching up and chatting until it went dark. And uh, it was just... A wonderful time. They were very generous with their money. They were very generous with their hearts. We laughed a lot together. And we cried together. Uh, what it is about, about me as I get older, I seem to cry more. And Chris was crying and I was crying, so we were crying together. Um, and there's just, I don't know, hopefully you all have these friends like this, right? There are certain friends I have, and Chris is one of them, where we might not see each other for 10 years. But you sit down and within 10 minutes, you just, it's like no time has passed at all. And you're talking, and you don't have to do any small talk. You know, apart from, hi, how are you? I'm really good. Let me tell you what's been going on in my life in the last 12 months. And it's like, boo, you know, just open. And that's what it's like uh, with Chris. A very open, honest, vulnerable man of great heartedness. Very involved in helping um, some situations in Mexico just over the border, some very poor, challenging situations I can't talk about because it wouldn't be safe for the people in those areas where the cartels work, the cartels are in control. It's where Chris goes to help people. 
just a generous-hearted, loving person. His wife, Lynn's amazing. And it's when you're around people like that, every now and again, that it just reminds you what it's all about to be a Christian. It's about relationships, it's about love, and it's about generosity. They, they, they could have looked after me without spending half as much time and, and money, and I'd have been perfectly happy with it, but they went out of their way to make me feel welcomed and loved. And it's that generosity, it's that generosity that makes the love of Jesus that's real for us, real to each other. How do we know what the love of Christ is? It's by showing that love to each other. It's by experiencing it from one another. And you talked about this last week, I can appreciate that. And you know, if we're going to be a congregation to honor God in this place, then it's going to happen as we are ridiculously generous to one another. Perhaps even foolishly generous in the way the world would look at it. Generous beyond what is sensible. Overflowing with love, like Paul talks about. Overflowing with that love that Jesus shows us by dying on the cross. It's by being generous with our time with one another. It's by being generous with our gifts to help one another. It's by being generous with our money, maybe even in some way, with each other. It's about being generous with our hearts to listen to one another and listen to the point it hurts. If you've had those long conversations sometimes where it's just hard to listen and listen and listen, but we do because we love, because we're generous like Jesus to us. I don't know how else we're going to experience the love of Jesus unless we show the love of Jesus to one another in generous, overflowing. There's a word I'm searching for here. It's not quite foolish isn't the right word, but with a love that is not boundaried, I don't mean in an unhealthy way, but just we don't, we're not counting the cost. Like we're not looking at the watch. We're not saying, can I really afford this? We just... Unconstrained is a very good word, thank you. Yeah, that sort of limit, limitless. You know, we're not, we're not limiting how much love we're going to give. We're saying, how much can I give? That's the right question. How much can I give? Not how much do I need to give. We see that in Jesus, and we see that in this woman. A generosity. Wholeheartedness is beautiful. Generosity is beautiful. Being a Christian is about showing the beauty of God to the world, and that comes through us being ridiculously generous to one another. It's the first thing I see. And the second thing, and we'll wrap up with this, is just to think about Jesus for a minute here and his disposition, his attitude, his spirit. And I think what I see in Jesus, and I need this right now with everything that's going on, is that Jesus is at peace when everybody around him is panicking. Jesus is at peace when everybody around him is upset, angry, frustrated, not getting what they want. But Jesus is at peace. He is serene in this challenging situation. He knows his death is not far away. He knows these people want to kill him. He knows what Jesus, Judas is going to do. He know, Even in this situation, so late on in his Life on earth and training his disciples, his disciples are still not getting the point about how to be in this kind of situation. How challenging for him. And yet in the middle of all this conflict, he's concerned about the one person, the one woman, who's being unfairly derided. 
Leave her alone. He could have ignored it. He had bigger things to do, you could argue. He had bigger, <clears throat> excuse me, matters to attend to. He was going to the cross. He could have said, thanks, woman. Uh, you know, let's move on. But he took the time. He noticed her, despite what else is going on. And I don't know about you, but I find it hard to be compassionate and listen and be kind to people when I'm in the midst of my own turmoil and you've got COVID and you've got Ukraine and you've got whatever else challenges you've got and maybe there's illness and maybe there's uncertainty and some of us, uh, we've got our kids who've missed a lot of education and some of the children here, you've missed some of your education and we've got all these gaps and problems and anxieties and I tend to miss the person the individual, and Jesus doesn't. He notices her. He's reclining. Isn't that lovely? He's not sitting on the edge of his seat, like, tense. He's reclining. And he notices the woman. He allows the woman to do such a strange thing for that culture. He's sensitive to how she must be feeling when she's rebuked. He confronts those who are hostile to her without losing his temper. He knows the religious leaders are out to get him, yet he wastes time on this anonymous woman. Betrayal by one of his best friends doesn't deflect him from his course, and it doesn't destroy his poise. And he continues to have vision even as the storm is approaching him. He knows where this is going. Jesus stands up for us against Satan, against evil, and against death, just like, in a way, she stands up for him. She stands up for him, he stands up for her. And he stands up for all of us. It's important that we're generous. But it's important we're generous for the right reason. And the right reason is because we love Jesus. And we think he is amazing. He's our inspiration. So a couple of questions to finish and then we'll pray. Are you happy to be an anonymous good doer for Jesus? We don't know her name, although she gets preached across the whole world ever since, 2,000 years. Still don't know her name. She's anonymous. Are you prepared to be anonymous? Just to do good. Not to be a do-gooder in that negative sense, you know what I mean? But to be a person who does good. She did a beautiful thing. She did what she could. What she could. Are we happy to do what we can? It might seem that your actions and mine aren't that significant when we look at the big issues around us today, but Jesus sees what appears to be insignificant and it believes it to be significant and honors it and recognizes it. What is the do what you can thing for you right now? What is that small thing that you could do? Somebody in this congregation, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody you know, one small thing doing some good generously, not partially, not half-heartedly, not just enough, but giving your heart. What might that be for you? She did a beautiful thing. She did it for Jesus. You and I have, a, have an opportunity and a privilege to be able to do beautiful things for Jesus. As we pray now, I'd like to ask us, just let's pray and reflect on, maybe ask God to make it clear what that beautiful thing might be in today, tomorrow, in the next few days. What, what is that beautiful thing? Let's pray together.